0: Good afternoon, it's Friday the 18th of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, we've got Patrick Henningson and uh, Vanessa Bailey, uh, welcome to the programme. Both, we're gonna get straight on here with the G20, which uh, finished on Wednesday, of course. Um, and uh, well, the, uh, and that the uh, uh, comments or the uh, announcements from the G20 came out uh, yesterday and uh, well, let's just cover a little bit of what it was said, beginning with vaccine passports. We acknowledge the importance of shared technical standards and verification methods under the framework of the International Health Regulations 2005 to facilitate seamless international travel interoperability and recognising digital solutions and non-digital solutions, including proof of vaccinations. Uh, and uh, that should capitalise and build on the success of the existing standards and digital COVID-19 certificates. And uh, just to remind everybody, of course, meanwhile in the UK, uh, this is the latest guidance on using the NHS COVID pass to demonstrate COVID-19 status if you're traveling abroad. Uh, So undoubtedly, this is uh, at the forefront of the policy agenda that's come out of the G20. Uh, It went on talking about mRNA vaccines. We recognize the need for strengthening local and regional health product manufacturing capabilities, capacity, sorry, and cooperation as well as sustainable global and regional research and development networks to facilitate better access to vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics globally. We support the World Health Organization, mRNA uh, vaccine technology transfer hub, as well as uh, the spokes in all regions of the world with the objectives of sharing technology and technical know-how on voluntary and mutually agreed terms. Uh, Central bank digital currencies, uh, we welcome the successful completion of the G20 tech sprint 2022 a joint initiative with the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub which has contributed to the debate uh, on the most practical and feasible solutions to implement CBDCs and just a reminder that just a few weeks ago the Bank of England uh, following up on their announcements over the last couple of years but uh, saying that they are now seriously looking at this as an option. Uh, Then we've got uh, carbon taxes, Uh, we're committed to the G20 said to promote investment in sustainable infrastructure and industry as well as innovative technologies and a wide range of fiscal, market and regulatory mechanisms to support clean energy transitions, including as appropriate, the use of carbon pricing and non-pricing mechanisms and incentives. Uh, And uh, here again, I just want to remind everybody that of course this began, uh, or at least the the one iteration of it began at COP26, when Mark Carney, uh, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action launched uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And if you want to know about that or more about that, have a look at Ian Davis's article, uh, the not so great carbon reset part two. Um, and then we come on to, well, what I'm calling commodity data. Uh, so the COVID-19 pandemic, the G20 says said, had, uh, has accelerated the transformation of the digital ecosystem and the digital economy. We recognize the importance of digital transformation in reaching the strategic development goals Uh, We remain committed to further enable data-free flow uh, with trust and promote cross-border data flows. Um, So again, we have the British government um, absolutely pushing this. Uh, This was announced, we covered this on the news a couple of weeks ago, the fact that the Department for Health and Social Care uh, loosening the restrictions on who uh, can be in receipt of medical data uh, in the UK. Uh, but let's look at a, the situation broader in a broader context because here's Infosys uh, and this website here which is Tom's corner of the internet is highlighting the fact that Infosys, Infosys had uh, publicly uh, published uh, uh, Amazon Web Services keys uh, for over a year. And if we just look at the uh, quote here from this, uh, so this is definitively something, Tom says, this is definitively something that should have been reported to them. Uh, that's Infosys. I always let my curiosity get the better of me, so I listed the root of the Amazon uh, storage. Uh, and from the contents, it seems that the bucket contains data used to train COVID prediction models inside the Johns Hopkins University Hospital uh, directory. Uh, there appeared to be a file name or there appeared to be file names that looked like they contained some form of clinical data, uh, which I did not exercise to verify. But nonetheless, clinical data on there. Now we should remember who Infosys is. Uh, This is the company which is owned by uh, Rishi Sunak's parents-in-law or father-in-law. So uh, direct contact, uh, contact, um, direct connections there to the British Prime Minister. Emphasis clearly doesn't care too much about uh, maintaining protections on people's uh, personal information. Uh, But don't worry, we're releasing the restrictions on who can share and how data can be shared. Um, And just as a brief comment on Uh, emphasis, if we uh, have a look at this article from 2012, a government of common purpose, Uh, Martin Edwards highlighting that uh, David Cameron uh, had met common purpose course participants at the emphasis headquarters in Bangalore. So quite a nest there of connections, but do we trust them to look after data? Of course not. Uh, And then finally on this uh, disinformation, uh, and we acknowledge the importance to counter disinformation campaigns cyber threats, online abuse, and ensuring security and in connectivity infrastructure. So we're going to come on to uh, disinformation in the EU with Vanessa in a second. But just before uh, we get to that, I just wanted to get your thoughts, Patrick, because uh, there was quite a lot to unpack uh, from the G20 uh, announcement.
1: Yes, that's correct. Um, well, my thoughts on that are that uh, the the, ob- the obvious problem there is that This uh, issue of the digital passports um, is being ratified um, basically away from the democratic process. In other words, we're not able to vote on this. This isn't something that uh, the electorate of any of these countries, this thing that's going to affect everybody's lives. uh, We don't have any say in that. It's being done by fiat um, at this sort of uh, globalist uh, NGO um, level. Um, So there are these sort of uh, processes in place, these sort of agreements uh, in terms of normalization of travel um, and standardization of uh, public health uh, precautions, um, i.e. some way to deal with pandemics or vaccinations. There's WHO agreements. That's all kind of embedded in what you just said. Um, But the problem is this takes it a step further. And the the fear is, as it was before two years ago, that if one country or two countries do it, then everybody has to basically do it to normalize the process. So it's all being done outside of um, anybody's decision making within any particular country. Certainly not the electorate. That's what it was like with the war on terror, with all the various security protocols and barriers that we have to still endure. And I think it's the same thing; is the same problem has arisen here. So it's it's going to be a very difficult one to tackle because it's hard to know where to tackle it.
0: Uh, indeed. So, uh, Vanessa, the last uh, the last slide there, um, the last comment from the Bali Summit was uh, acknowledging the importance to counter disinformation campaigns. Um, so let's start off with the European Union and the latest. Uh, and of course, they're talking about the war in Ukraine related to disinformation.
2: Yeah, I mean, basically, there was a recent uh, on the 11th of the 11th. Actually, um, there was a recent um, what they call it session, um, two sessions, referenced the war in Ukraine, lessons learned in countering information manipulation. There's new terminology for it. There, of course, I think it was a couple of months ago that we reported on UK column that there had been um, a conference held that was overseen by the US State Department. In Ukraine, Western Ukraine itself, um, effectively concluding that dissidents or people who were challenging the um, establishment narratives were to be known as either war criminals or information terrorists. And of course, this is the patterning that we're seeing across the board. Um, this is in the framework of the EU partnership with aspen U- UK, the EU delegation to the United Kingdom. Organized a two panel conference on countering the Kremlin's disinformation. (laughs) Of course, there's no disinformation whatsoever from the West, is there? And information manipulation in the war in Ukraine. Experts from the European External Action Service, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Offices, who are effectively experts in disinformation and information manipulation, behavioral insight, etc., and practitioners. From Ukraine, gave an overview of the Putin's government practices and had a thorough exchange on the lessons each of them has learned from countering them over time. But then let's have a quick look at some of the people involved. I again recommend that people go to the website and check it all out for themselves. We can only um, take a very sort of shallow dive into the information um, in the time we have. But let's have a look who was involved in the first session. Of course, Andy Price, the FDO's head of counter disinformation, and where is he from, Mike? As UK Column pointed out um, a fair while ago, and of course UK Column has been covering the the Andy Price saga for some time, he was, of course, heading up Integrity Initiative, um, and, of course, that was created to do the work of the Foreign and Commonwealth Officers counter disinformation and media development program. Um, To pursue that agenda, the Institute for Statecraft, as you wrote yourself, Mike, The charitable think tank behind Integrity Initiative received um, basically 1.2 million from the FCO over the course of 2018. What is Andy Price doing now, according to an article by Kit Klarenberg in The Grey Zone? Um, They've been talking extensively about Andy Price's uh, relationship with British journalist Paul Mason. Leaked emails reveal how Mason's war on the anti-war left was conducted in close coordination with Price and how the pair discussed constructing an intelligence-supported Info-Op that would be publicly presented as an organic, grassroots endeavor. Sound familiar? They plan to call it the International Information Brigade In-Effect Integrity Initiative 2. So that gives you some indication um, of the caliber of the panelists in this disinformation um, conference. Now, the second... Um, panel basically goes into some detail about the 2022 Code of Practice on Disinformation. I don't know if you've covered this previously, but I again cherry pick from the strengthening of the Code of Practice of Disinformation um, which has been signed and presented on the 16th June by 34 signatories who have joined the revision process of the 2018 Code. So what does some of that um consist of it contains 44 commitments 128 specific measures in the following areas and again i've just sort of picked out the ones that are perhaps either most alarming or most relevant to the work we do for example demonetization cutting financial incentives for purveyors of disinformation again who determines that someone is purveying disinformation the strength and code aims to ensure that purveyors of disinformation do not benefit from advertising revenues. Signatories commit to stronger measures avoiding the placement of advertising next to disinformation, as well as the dissemination of advertising containing disinformation. Um, and then moving on again, empowering the fact-checking community. I'm sure everyone is now breathing a sigh of relief that the fact-checking community that so far has failed to Identify any real facts whatsoever, either on COVID, Ukraine, or Syria. Um, But the new code will extend fact checking coverage across all EU member states and languages and ensure that platforms will make more consistent use of fact checking on their services. Moreover, the code works towards ensuring fair financial contributions for fact checkers' work. So, so in other words, fact checkers are going to be better paid than the actual disinformation. (laughs) Um, providers or purveyors, um, and better access to fact-checkers to information facilitating their daily work. So what this effectively means, the censorship on all of our work is going to extend and fact-checkers are going to be empowered further. Transparency Center and Task Force, the Transparency Center accessible to all citizens will allow for an easy overview of the implementation of the code's measures, providing transparency and regular updates of relevant um, data. The task force is composed of representatives of signatories, the European Regulators Group for Audiovisual Media Services, the European Digital Media Observatory, and the European External Action Service, and is chaired by the Commission. So here is the EU, not only the UK, of course, getting involved um, from the point of view of online harms, but here is the EU strengthening its fact checking. Um, and its uh, determination to censure and destroy any dissident media.
0: Yes, and uh, well, well, look, uh, you know, the issue of disinformation and counter disinformation is is something which began uh, with the United Kingdom and their claim, well, it effectively uh, really started gaining traction with the exposure of the Integrity Initiative and, and therefore the, the UK mm-hmm. started uh, Pushing hard to to call certain people uh, purveyors of disinformation, um, but mm-hmm. one of the other narratives that's been developing over the last two or three years in parallel is this idea that uh, people who don't follow the uh, or who challenge the government narrative or the mainstream media narrative on anything are right wing extremists, and this is something that we've seen developing in the UK again beginning, and it's now heading into other countries. We mentioned this briefly uh, a couple of days ago, but let's uh, get up to date on it with the issue of the Dutch government uh, labelling so-called dissidents, right-wing extremists. Um, This is almost like the new anti-Semitism.
2: Yeah, it is, and and even beyond that, Mike, because actually in the in the actual um, documentation, they go as far as to call them, and this again is echoing the uh, language used in Ukraine by the SBU intelligence services by the State Department and so on, that those that are are challenging state narratives become information terrorists and can be prosecuted as such. And that is effectively what we're seeing um, in the Netherlands as reported by the counter-signal. Dutch government labels distance right-wing extremists, as you said. But here, the Dutch government released a terrorist threat assessment this week Labeling people who protest COVID-19 or globalist environmental policies as right-wing extremists. Um, a tweet by Sander 2021, the Dutch national coordinator for counterterrorism and security, released a threat analysis report. Dutch civilians who mistrust their government. <laughs> so even you know mistrusting your government falls under this. And remember that BBC commissioned report by King's College, London, that I highlighted last week, related to Mariana Spring, article attacking Richard D. Hall. Media and scientists are assigned as potential anti-government extremists. Translated citations of this report attached, and I'll put those up now. So it's it's translated. from Dutch, so anti-government extremism, and he's highlighted uh, the most important point here. In the Netherlands, a group of anti-government extremists is targeting from a fundamental mistrust, anger and sense of injustice against the government and other institutions. I'm assuming that's a a Google translation, hence it's not um, brilliant. Um, And again here, they focus from a fundamental mistrust, anger and sense of injustice against the government but also wider to other institutions. They resist the way in which politics, the legal system, the media, and the science are fulfilled. The radical undercurrent is not only in this mistrust, polls show that more than half of the Dutch have no confidence in the government, which is actually an even higher figure shown than the one shown by King's College London in the UK. But then the article finishes up the Dutch Dutch anti-terrorism branch also labeled people who protest globalist policies pushed by the World Economic Forum as extremists and conspiracy theorists. Some of them embrace conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories detract from public trust and the institutions of the democratic rule of law. How democratic is is it to shut down completely, completely on freedom of speech, as you pointed out, Mike, um the uk through its legislation and its various bills is becoming closer to a nazi um uh, type of government than a democratic one the spread and normalization of such theories can give rise to the commission of extremist and even terrorist acts so here we come you know just as they are claiming that we are extremists their language is becoming more and more extreme in an attempt um, to be able to prosecute us for, for actually mistrusting them, number one, and then demonstrating evidence for why we mistrust them. And this eventually will incapacitate our ability to question our government, and you've been seeing that for some time with the government responses to the FOIs.
0: Yes, indeed. Indeed, well, look, uh, thank, you, thank you for that. Now let's. Uh move on uh, to Twitter. Uh, Patrick, of course, uh, Twitter being one of the main uh, uh, social media platforms at the heart of this whole di- information disinformation debate, uh, and free- and the freedom of speech debate. And since Elon Musk took over, uh, many people uh, on the, shall we say the left side of politics are uh, very concerned about what the implications are for uh, the control of, of narratives and so on. Uh, but in the meantime, Elon Musk is trying to get uh, Twitter back on track.
1: Sure, sure. It's 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 more like a purge uh, that's going on at Twitter. Is uh, Elon Musk, the new owner, is private owner now, It's trying to make it profitable. It's trying to shape up the company so it's actually making money. So it's going to have to do a number of things, including possibly lay off you know thousands of staff and rethink how the whole company is is constructed is working. So he's laid down an ultimatum here. Basically anybody who's not prepared to come in the office and work really hard uh, or extremely hardcore as he puts it, um, you're you're sacked basically. Uh, so there's, there's talk of the employees saying they want to unionize, there's all sorts of chatter on social media. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's gonna go very far. Um, so, but what it is, is a lot of these people are content moderators and people working remotely. And this is just seen as a big drain. The whole point here is that Twitter was, was not running like a business, maybe even from the beginning, but you know, when it had funding and when it had achieved escape velocity in terms of a big social media company, they, they, they don't function like a business. They're not accountable. They don't have to show uh, a profit. Um, they don't have to show that they're sustainable. It's basically Twitter became a political project. That's the point. Um, and its main goal was to censor the public square. That became Twitter's main raison d'etre. Yeah, there's a lot going on in terms of information, and it, it provides various platforms for people to say certain things, emergency services, official government agencies, businesses. Everybody uses Twitter, but the political conversation is heavily moderated by fact checkers, by content moderators, by automated AI algorithms so this is the problem is this trying to regulate and twitter is is a microcosm of what the government wants to do and the government is working with twitter to ban and censor people that's been shown now Um, that's proven that's going to come out in a congressional investigation more of that's going to come out there's a number of lawsuits that are uh, in federal court right now about this very thing banning people over covid meeting with public health dhs fbi um, and in order to uh, delete posts, come up with blacklists and things like that. They're trying to regulate and centrally manage the information space. So it's, it's the same thing as the Soviet Union trying to regulate and manage the economy. Um, it's no longer a free market. It's going to become dysfunctional very quickly. The same with the information space. If this is the, the route that governments are determined to go down, but they need to collude with big tech firms at the moment to do that, And Elon Musk doesn't look like he's going to be playing that game. So he's going to have he's going to butt heads with the government on this eventually, and it probably be they can come after him a number of different ways. So this is something to be concerned about. But uh, there's there's a video of a Twitter employee. I guess this was. I think it's legitimate. I think it's real. This is pre-Elon, or um, uh, you know, before Elon. Be Um, this is of the Be era, and this is her on a typical. no coming into the office i don't know just visiting the office not working there but visiting there uh it's it's pretty uh, pretty amazing if you want to roll this one
3: a day in my life as a twitter employee so this past week went to sf for the first time at a twitter office badged in honestly took a moment to just soak everything in what a blessing also started my morning off with an iced matcha from the perch then i had a meeting so quickly scheduled one of these little pods rooms which were so cool they're literally noise cancelling took my meeting got ready for a bunch look how delicious this food looks oh my goodness i was so overwhelmed then made my way down to this log cabin area i don't know what this is but it was really cool played some foosball with my friends to kind of unwind a bit um also found this really cool meditation room that I thought was super neat um I didn't do any yoga but they have this yoga room if you are a yogi so also thought that was really cool um had a couple more meetings in the afternoon had a ton of projects that we needed to knock out say hi to my teammates um (laughs) went to the went to the library to kind of get some more work done obviously had to have our afternoon coffee so made some espresso and then before leaving for the day had some red wine um that's on tap went up to the rooftop and just honestly enjoyed the beautiful weather so awesome trip
0: just like the uk column office patrick
1: yeah yeah yeah. so Elon musk getting rid of the cafeteria so it turned out this he's spending millions of dollars per year uh, on staff food and that's all going basically so he's basically trimming all the fat i mean pretty incredible I think that's that's authentic I think it's uh, but it's doing the rounds on social media in in conjunction with this latest uh uproar at Twitter so um, interesting but we'll see how th- this situation unfolds over the next couple of months
0: Uh yeah I mean uh, uh, Vanessa's talking about the the disinformation uh situation in the EU we know what's yeah. happening in the UK we know what is attempting to be happening it has been attempted to happen in, in the United States with respect to this Do you think Twitter uh, will be able to take a stand against some of this legislation that's appearing around the world, particularly the EU, because they tend to have a much uh, uh, stronger enforcement?
1: Yeah, they. I mean, they could easily take the same route that Rumble took, which was, I mean, Elon Musk could. He's kind of an fu guy. You'd be like well F you like Rumble said to France France is oh well we can't have Rumble uh, on French uh, airwaves or in the internet because you guys have RT and you until you delete RT or block RT we're not going to you know we don't want to allow Rumble Rumble said well F you um, we're not deleting RT so and we don't care about the French market anyway so piss off basically I mean that's the attitude I think musk is going to have because a lot of more people are dependent on Twitter and what you're going to find is a lot of people in these countries in different markets are more dependent on Twitter for basic functions of communication um, than Twitter is on that particular government in terms of ad revenue. So if you look at the scale of Twitter right now, where its money, where its income is coming from, I mean, Elon Musk has already done a couple of uh, optimization exercises in terms of advertising that will immediately could potentially double their ad revenue within like 12 months. So he's already sort of going to be making changes like that. So it it, it might come down to that. I think that I think it's going to raise this conversation, this debate to a more adult level, because at the moment it's been headmaster student and governments have been able to say and do things and assume things that are just patently uh, ridiculous and against every single principle Uh, in their constitution or any of the values or democratic values that they pretend to uphold. um, They've been able to sidestep and get away from actually engaging in a hard debate on all that. And maybe this situation might raise that uh, issue a little bit more into the uh, conversation where people sober up a little bit and realize what they're attempting to do, which is like put an Orwellian uh, grid down uh, on speech and communication, which is what governments in Europe and uh, in the US as well Would would like to do.
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, uh, become a member, uh, or you could uh, grab a membership for somebody for Christmas. Uh, Membership vouchers are available on the UK column shop. uh, But please do share the material you find on the various platforms. Uh, Now, obviously, on Wednesday, let's move on to Ukraine. We were talking about the uh, claims about missiles falling in Poland, and so on. Uh, your first uh, headline here saying Zelensky has backtracked on uh, missile claims. Has he done that?
1: Um, He sort of has. He's hedging a little bit. As you know, he kind of doubled down on his original statements, which you've covered uh, earlier in the week, um, that uh, it was definitely Russia. It's definitely a Russian missile, and it could only have been a Russian missile. Um, So when he was doing this Bloomberg New Economy Forum, I mean, I don't know how this guy keeps up or who manages his social calendar, but he's on a Zoom meeting at all these sort of institutional things every sort of day or multiple times a day. When does he get time to actually Govern as a wartime president in in Ukraine is beyond anybody's uh, guess here. But this is what he said: um, I I don't know what happened this time. We do not know for one hundred percent. Well, we do know for one hundred percent what happened, uh, President Zelensky. Um, it was Ukrainian S three hundred missiles that dropped into Poland on a farm. Uh, you guys clearly don't know how to operate your air defense systems, and you're firing stuff all over the place because Russia has denied having any uh, activity on the uh, uh, Ukrainian-Polish border. And if there was any evidence that Russia did have any missiles flying around there, it would have already been aired globally. So like, what exactly happened here? And uh, the president goes on, but I am sure that there was a Russian missile. And I am sure we were launching air defense missiles. So this is like a really ham-fisted effort by Zelensky to try to patch up What he did was attempt to drag uh, Europe and NATO and the West into World War III-type situation by going on and demanding that uh, they escalate because NATO, quote, territory has been breached. Okay, NATO doesn't have territories. NATO has member states. It doesn't have territory. Just a little reminder there. Um, So that's what he was up to there. And so he's kind of in a a bit bit of a, a, a conundrum, Zelensky, because he's really... Uh, woken up the Europeans, and they're realizing what a psychopath this guy is, what a charlatan he actually is. And people will start pretty soon realizing that three years ago he was doing third rate vaudeville comedy on Eurotrash television in a European backwater uh, country and politically a, a backwater Ukraine. And now he's president and world president, according to a lot of people. But this whole point of the missiles, just <laughs> rewind it back to 2021. Sanja Jaffet and the comment he made uh, about toe caps but just a reminder if we play this but you know, let's be very clear Nick that if there's if a single Russian toe cap steps into NATO territory there will be war with NATO you remember that one
0: yeah yeah incredible. <laughs> so,
1: so the toe cap, um, so I don't see Javid, uh, he was very quiet. I didn't see him raising hell about this latest uh, incident. Everyone's gone kind of quiet because when the reality hits, um, it's a little bit different. It's easy to sort of posture uh, the way they have been the last couple of years. So a lot of people were concerned about how close hostilities are getting. But I want to I wanna throw something out because I don't think, I personally think it's possible that this was more than just an accident by Ukraine. Uh, And I want to point to this, which is something that hasn't got a lot of coverage. The CIA director was meeting with Duda um, at the very moment, um, almost the very moment that this actually happened. And this is interesting here that uh, he was there. So that is, do you believe in coincidences? And we go on. Not only that, he actually met with Zelensky. And uh, apparently he was at the U.S. Embassy uh, while this thing was actually uh, happening. Um, in in Ukraine, so uh, in Kiev, so like what's what's actually going on here? If you look at the pivot that's went on after this, so Zelensky put out his ham-fisted uh, Instagram message or whatever, demanding that we go to war or do something or react NATO. But what it's done is it's opened up the conversation to push towards some kind of towards negotiations, whether they're going to get there or not anytime soon is anyone's guess. But it's provided a uh, environment where they can pivot away from the previous position, which is um, uh, indefinite arming and backing a proxy war. And notice that this all happened after the U.S. midterm elections. So I'm going to say there's more than a coincidence here. This could have also been to nudge. Who, who knows who was behind and how this was executed, this whole scenario. But whether it was just an accident or whether this was kind of a more than an accident to advance certain things down the road to make it politically feasible even at the expense of the comedian in kiev and uh so here's zelensky at the uh, g20 let's just rewind a couple of days and this was his i mean it's incredible the things that he's getting away with saying is pretty unbelievable but listen closely to what he's saying here It is like, for example,
2: D-Day, the landing of the Allies in Normandy. It was not yet a final point in the fight against
3: evil, but it already determined the entire further course of events. If the victory will be ours in any case, and we are sure of it, then shouldn't we try to implement our formula for peace to save thousands of lives and protect the world from further destabilization?
1: So he's comparing Kursan City, um, Ukrainian forces retaking Kursan City or Russia withdrawing. He's comparing that to D-Day. So, I mean, I don't know how he's able to get away with this stuff um, with Europeans, but he's getting away with it. Uh, So I I might add, it's kind of terribly ironic that uh, Ukraine is responsible for the first strike on, quote, NATO territory since Russian operations began. That's kind of interesting and uh, funny. In, on, on a certain level, but uh, let's look at uh, the peace proposal that he put out at the G20. It kind of re- look radiation and nuclear safety. Okay, fine. Food security. Okay, whatever. Energy security. That's a whole mess right there to untangle, um, and he's not going to be the one to untangle that. Uh, release of prisoners and deportees. Okay, fine. Implementation of the UN Charter depending on which way you look at the UN Charter. Obviously, he's talking about the uh, the, the aggression uh, principles in the UN Charter. Russia's talking about people in Donbass and other regions. They're talking about self-determination in the UN Charter. We've gone over that before. Withdrawal of Russian troops and cessation of hostilities. He's not in a position, no one's in a position to demand that. And quite frankly, it's just impossible. They're talking about Crimea being repatriated. The Donbass—it's not going. It's a non-starter. Not going to happen. Justice. So this is kind of a virtue signaling uh, requirement here by Zelensky—he's still riding high. Believes that people believe what he is saying. Um, ecocide and the protection of the environment. Um, that's just—I don't know. Forget it. We'll pass on that. Um, prevention of escalation, con- confirmation of the end of the war. So I, uh, he's living in a kind of, they're, they're living in a postmodernist kind of bubble there. And it's, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So I'm going to say this is DOA, dead on arrival. Zelensky's peace proposal is DOA. So here is what he wants to do. And we'll, I was calling this uh, a mockery, basically. Zelensky wants to do a public peace uh, negotiations. Basically, he wants to make it a TV show. Um, and he, Zelensky said he would like to have negotiations with Russia in a public format, aka a TV show, rather than behind closed doors the way diplomats normally do things. So R- Russia, uh, of course, um, <laughs> expectedly is, is not having this. And this is what they're saying. Kiev's new idea of a public negotiation, uh, which is an attempt to turn diplomacy in a TV show, proves the unseriousness of its intentions. So they're making these uh, peace demands or proposals that are going to be rejected, and then they'll turn around and say, the way the Israelis normally do with the Palestinians, is we offered you a good deal and you rejected it, so you don't want peace, basically. And Dmitry Peskov goes on, a Kremlin spokesperson said on Thursday that the notion of public negotiations, quote unquote, doesn't exist. So one thing is obvious, the Ukraine side doesn't want any talks. So it's basically designed to fail. That's what it looks like uh, right now. And I might note, R- Russia has not changed its position um, regarding negotiations. They've been pretty consistent the whole way. Ukraine keeps uh, waffling all over the place, so you can't really get a read on what they want to do. So it's hard, it's hard to establish the preconditions for a peace process when you have these two different things going on. And the United States hasn't intervened and told Zelensky to shut up And sort of grow up and bring in some adults to start the process. They're just letting him freestyle. And you can see it's just a joke. So he's pandering to the Western public and the types of people that sign petitions on Evaz and globalist uh, types and uh, parliamentarians in the West who don't actually know what's going on there anyway. And just platitudes, virtue signaling. That's basically the game plan. So Mark Root, the uh, Dutch prime minister, uh, one of these globalist cheerleaders arguably and so he did this phone call with Zelensky and after he managed to pocket 100 million dollars in quote help or aid Um, but this is the theater that has become the norm Uh, watch this this staged scene here
4: yes good to speak to you again for loading me I hope you're safe I hope you're doing okay I'm safe thank you so much
5: Thank you Mark for the possibility to speak with you.
4: How are you? I'm I'm fine, but um, I I, I can tell you we are are following the situation very closely. Uh, uh, I've seen and the whole world uh, has seen uh, the ongoing uh, Russian aggression uh, against uh, your country. Uh, And especially now these days on civilian targets. Uh, on electricity and on water supplies. It is truly horrific. And I want to use this opportunity again to tell you that the Netherlands will continue uh, to support Ukraine. We stand by your side um, during the uh, coming winter, particularly, of course, but also after coming winter for as long as it takes. And uh, we will discuss many things in this call, but let me start by saying I want to thank you again for your leadership.
5: From all of the Ukrainians for your support and for the support of your society, I
1: wanted to also. I mean, it's 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 a joke, it's 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 theater. So Zelensky lives in this theater world, and all the politicians that step into his theater world are in this this same sort of uh, skit, this pantomime. So here's Rishi and Justin at the G20. And it's good to see that the new prime minister has found a friend uh, in Canada, and they seem to be birds of a feather. They look very good together as well. They make a nice, uh, a fetching couple, as it were, uh, politically uh, speaking. But here they are speaking, doing a, a Zoom call to Zelensky, and this is all for public show. This is to make it more sort of human, to make it more accessible. The Ukrainian issue. This is why they put out these sort of videos, but they're just laughable. This one particularly is something else. We'll go ahead and roll this. Prime Minister Prime Minister President
3: Zelensky, please go ahead, you're online. Hello, Vladimir, it's Rishi and Justin. I really wanted you to hear from us as friends. We absolutely know how difficult yesterday was. It was horrific for
0: you and your country, and we have called it out in the session that we've just had uh, and on the media here this morning, and we made that point loud and clear uh, to the, to everyone who was here that what your country had to live through yesterday was unacceptable and represented yet
3: more uh, barbarity from the Russians. We stood united in condemning it. Rishi and I really wanted to, to reach out to reassure you uh, to show you we're standing with you uh, and to say we're going to we're going to uh, figure out this uh, step by step altogether. Thank you, Vladimir. Talk to you soon.
0: You know, Patrick, on Wednesday's programme, uh, we, we showed the, the photograph of them together making that call. And I made the remark about the mobile phone. We hope it was an approved mobile phone and so on. But actually, the comedy value of that only comes across in the video, which unfortunately hadn't been released in time for Wednesday's program. So that's, that's, that was just spectacular.
1: Well, it's good to know that Rishi has called them out. He's called them out in, this, in the session. So, I mean, that's going to send a strong message to Russia that Rishi Sunak's been calling them out. So it's, it's really laughable. It's, uh, this is a real clown show. Um, at the g, G20, g but, uh, and just, you know, the, uh, Justin Trudeau has a penchant for fancy dress, everybody knows that, so here, here they are uh, in the sort of the after event, and notice they're with the uh, two heads of state, apparently, with another head of state, Klaus Schwab, who's mingling and treated as a head of state at the G20, but they're all wearing their matching uh, Indonesian themed kind of um, seasonal shirts there. Looking great. You can do the caption. You Imagine what joke Rishi Sunak is, is telling here. Um, but caption contest for UK column viewers, if you want to put that in the chat box, insert your caption uh, here. Um, so who knows? He's probably telling which uh, stocks he's going to short in the next market crash. Nobody knows for sure. Those are two uh, people with no mandate, by the way. Justin Trudeau uh, got a very poor Uh, Result in the election, stitched together a coalition. Rishi Sunak is not elected; he's the latest appointed uh, prime minister uh, in the UK. So it's just bear that in mind. So we move on to uh, (laughs) there's the three amigos. So here's Klaus Schwab, and it's very important. He was given the one of the keynote uh, addresses at the G20, and I don't know if you played this before. It's a very brief statement by Schwab, but he basically lays out his frustration in the slow a walking of the, G, uh, of the Great Reset Agenda and what needs to happen to make it real. But uh, go ahead if, if you want to roll this.
5: Yeah, go ahead. But actually, what we have to confront is a deep, systemic, and structural restructuring of our world. And this will take some time. And the world will look differently after we have gone through this transition process. Politically, the driving forces for this political transformation, of course, is the transition into a multipolar world, which has a tendency to make our world much more fragmented. And for these reasons, Events like this one, the G20, and so on, are the very important connectors to avoid a too great segmentation, I would say, blockization instead of globalization of our world. Yeah,
1: you can, you can hear the frustration. He said this is going to take longer this restructuring, this reformatting of global economy, global society, uh, of global governance. It's going to take longer than we expected, um, this this agenda, this great reset, this restructuring, as he calls it. So he's already sort of pushing it back. And so if if we have, it, let's say, a change of leadership in the U.S. or a couple of other key countries, that could also delay and push that back um, even further in the next year or two. So this is where we're at right now on this. I don't know what you your takeaway would be from from that statement, Mike. But what what are your impressions on on what Schwab just said?
0: I think uh, my impressions on what he just said, but also what we're seeing from other uh, so called leaders, is is a sense of frustration and desperation at, at the time scales not that they had in mind not being met. Uh, and I think uh, what we've been already talking about on disinformation uh, is. One of the things that they're most concerned about, because that's one of the things that's delaying uh, their t- they're moving along their perceived timescale. But Vanessa, you had some thoughts on on this.
2: Well, no, actually, no, not really. I just wanted to point out that Rishi Sunak in that shirt looks very like Ben Stiller.
0: <laughs> okay, righty ho. Well, look, uh, let's let's move on uh, then with Ukraine, uh, Vanessa. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean basically I wanted to um just put forward some ideas for analysts um to follow whenever these events sort of um come to prominence like Kherson um like the uh, Russian stroke um Ukrainian missile um incredible reporting by the way by western media I mean AP um The Telegraph immediately jumped on it Russian missile in Polish territory, and then flip flopped about twelve hours later, but just appalling gerbelesque media coverage from Western media and The first recommendation I want to make is um, he's a Russian military analyst based in the u s. Um, his YouTube channel is not that easy to find because it's not actually um it, it's not under his name it's under smoothie x twelve his name is andre marnov and in fact, I recommend watching his latest offering, which is Goebbel's factory and media war crimes, which again talks in some detail about the life of Goebbel and then basically demonstrates how many of the kind of Media directors in the West have a huge number of similarities to both Goebbels' and Goebbels' tactics in producing the so called news, particularly on the Ukraine project. He has penned a couple of books, one which I recommend, Disintegration Indicators of the Coming American Collapse, which I think was written a couple of years ago. And then the Real Revolution in Military Affairs, which has had glowing reviews from Pepe Escobar, Paul Craig Roberts, uh Moon of Alabama, The Saker, and UNTS Review. Um so I haven't read that one yet, but it seems uh worth looking at. Just an idea. Uh sorry, the old dog is next to me and he's in a bit of pain today if you hear him squeaking. Um now he also has a, a blog, x 12blogspotcom and he wrote, uh, I think it's on November the 15th. So a no-brainer, really. Kherson increasingly begins to look like a trap for the Ukrainian army. You know, supplies don't arrive, electricity is off, and things of this nature. And then he he cites from an RT article, I believe. Russia has targeted Ukrainian energy infrastructure in a massive missile strike and we certainly have been seeing that over the last few days um that Ukraine is effectively being plunged into darkness so he then says make your own conclusions on the desirability of course flag referring of course to Zelensky's claim that Russia um had launched missiles into Polish um territory um NATO Needs to Act, quoting again from RT, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said on Tuesday, etc., etc., as I've just said. Um, and then he himself says, right, because NATO is winning dramatically, wink, wink. He has a great sense of humor, which is why I would also recommend um, people following him, both his YouTube channel and his blogspot. But interesting that he's now saying, Kherson is looking um, like a trap for the Ukrainian army. Um, referring to also what Patrick mentioned that uh, n- this was reported in the Express, but it's been carried across a number of um, mainstream media outlets. NATO rail breaks out as Zelensky savage for destructive lies over Poland missile. This is very strong language that we're seeing coming out. And I would also mention. um the meeting between william burns the director of the cia and of course his counterpart in russian intelligence in turkey the day before the attack um so very interesting that the attack came after this meeting so one has to wonder um what exactly was on the table during this meeting between effectively cia and russian intelligence um So basically, it says uh, Zelensky would not budge on the issue, insisting that a report he received from the incident left him certain that it was not our missile or our missile strike. Um, his statements have reportedly irked at least one Kiev-based diplomat from a NATO country, who told the Financial Times, "This is getting ridiculous." As Patrick reported, the Ukrainians are destroying our confidence in them. Nobody is blaming Ukraine, and they are openly lying. This is more destructive than the missile. Very, very um, strong words there. Um, Now, another person that I recommend who's also now got his own YouTube channel, Colonel Douglas McGregor, PhD in international relations, President Donald Trump's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to Germany and former senior advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Defense. He co-commanded the 91 Battle of Easting, 73 in Iraq, the largest last armored battle of the 20th century authored five books uh, addressing the issue of an effective modern army. I've been a regular commentator for uh, Fox News, but don't dismiss him as a right-wing commentator. And this was a recent interview that he gave actually to um, a Polish journalist. Um, Mike, if you just want to play a two-minute clip from that.
6: Beginning sometime over the next two, three, four, five, six, eight weeks, whenever the ground freezes completely, and uh, the Russians judge their force to be ready. And they will move in, and they will finish off this Ukrainian state. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, The regime in in Kiev is likely to be annihilated, along with the remainder of its armed forces, which over time have become more and more radicalized, to the point where now uh, these uh, so-called Azov Nazis and their supporters are not only uh, murdering Russians, they're murdering their own people. And as we saw recently, they actually— set out to kill Polish troops that were serving in Ukrainian uniform in Ukraine. This thing is is gone badly. The Russians have, have been running out of munitions, I guess, from day one, according to the propaganda, and the Ukrainians are still on their victory march. Well, that's all nonsense. The Russians are now fully mobilizing to complete this task. The biggest mistake we could make in the West is to involve ourselves. We've done enough damage. And I think what we're going to see is, is exactly what I described, the total destruction of this uh, rump Ukrainian state. Now, what happens afterwards? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm quite confident the Russians do not want to remain in Western Ukraine. That is the Ukrainian heartland. That's where the real Ukrainians live. Russians aren't interested in that. The Russians will likely be, you know, withdraw to the Dnieper River. But as far as Kherson is concerned, Kherson is part of this thing called Russia which was always Russian. Odessa was founded by Russians, although you could give some credit to Germans, who were certainly in service to Catherine the Great, who had a role in building a lot of these cities, along with some Englishmen, Scots and Dutch, let's be frank. But the bottom line is it was always Russian. It was never, quote-unquote, Ukrainian. The Ukrainian heartland is further north above the Black Sea. The Russians are going to recapture Kherson, and the Russians are going to retake Kharkov. These are historically Russian cities, but the Russians are not interested in the rest of it. I just hope that the Ukrainians allow for some sort of emergence of a new government with a new fresh attitude so that we.
2: Interesting that the the common theme between um, all of the analysts that I'm looking at, so McGregor, uh, Andrei Martinov, and the final one that I would recommend, um, big. Surge at substack.com. Big Surge uh, Thoughts, who's relatively new, um, but excellent analysis. And and what is also interesting, he, in his article entitled uh, Sor- Sorovikin's Difficult Choice, also talks about Kurson So he goes through um, the possibilities of what the Kerson withdrawal was about. So he mentions the Ukrainian army as. Diff- These are the potential um, reasons for the withdrawal. The Ukrainian army has defeated the Russian army on the West Bank and driven it back across the river. Russia is setting a trap in Kyrgyzstan, a secret peace agreement for at least ceasefire has been negotiated, which includes giving Kyrgyzstan back to Ukraine. And Russia has made a politically embarrassing, but military prudent, operational choice. So effectively, in the end, what he he concludes, after sort of some very, very salient, um analysis is that point four is the most likely um and basically, what he says again that that correlates with what the previous two analysts have been saying. um he says at the end, in this way, the withdrawal from Kherson can be seen as a sort of anti Stalingrad, in other words, preventing the isolation and siege of um, of Russian military in Kherson with with the winter approaching and also threats from the Ukrainian army of flooding the entire area um uh and I can't remember the name of the dam again I have to check that so instead of political interference um the military which is of course what we often see with western military strategy um he says we have the military free to make operational choices even at the cost of embarrassing the political figures I would add to some extent. And this ultimately is the more intelligent, if optically humiliating, way to fight a war. So the point he is making of course is that Russia Russia's strategy in Ukraine has military intelligence behind it. I, I don't mean intelligence as in the organization, I mean in intellectual intelligence behind it. Um rather than political intelligence driving it and i think that is what the west fails to understand um pretty much all the time one other point that mcgregor made in in the um interview and i haven't had time to check it is that the french army would be out of ammunition in four days that that drew a sharp intake of breath <laughs> um from the interviewer but and from myself as well because the, what he was basically saying is that the EU armies are simply not prepared um, for war. You might have a comment on that, Mike. Uh,
0: No, no, I think that covers it very well. So thank you very much for that, Vanessa. Let's come back to the UK then. Um, And uh, well, what was going on in Parliament yesterday? Um, Here is uh, uh, the announcement of the autumn statement. Uh, I'm not going to go into any massive detail on this. Uh, It's been widely covered on many sources and uh, no need to do that. But there is the uh, wonderful man himself giving uh, his autumn statement yesterday. Um, just very briefly, the Office for Budget Responsibility uh, pushed out a few graphs on Twitter yesterday. The economy has entered a recession uh, and they're forecasting that that's going to last for just over a year. Uh, we'll see how uh, good that forecast is, of course. Uh, high inflation, they say, results in falling living standards in 2022, 2023 and 2023, 2024 despite significant fiscal support. So the government spending money, uh, but we'll still see a 7% fall in living standards uh, over the next two years. Uh, And uh, then they're saying that uh, CPI inflation peaks at a 40 year high, but lower than it would have been uh, without the government's energy price guarantee. And uh, well, if that doesn't show the complete nonsense of uh, the CPI inflation figures, Then uh, it should do. Let's just remind ourselves what uh, what uh, Liz Truss's uh, idea for the energy price cap. These uh, figures uh, are estimates for what the uh, actual cost of energy is likely to be for the average household uh, in 2023. The ones in red. Uh, And if you remember, Liz Truss was suggesting that the government would pay everything to the right-hand side of that blue line, so the government would cover the costs. Uh, meaning that the average household would only pay uh, annually two and a half thousand pounds uh, in energy costs. Well, yesterday, uh, the announcement was that that two and a half thousand pound cap, uh, cap would rise to three thousand uh, after April, uh, which basically means that from April forwards, the government still has to cover everything uh, that's on the right hand side of that line. So hardly uh, gonna make very much difference in terms of the long-term inflationary effects on this. Uh, But anyway, uh, looking at the government's uh, cost of living support fact sheet, I just wanted to to mention the examples they gave at the bottom of this. Uh, They're talking about a single adult working full time uh, on the national uh, living wage uh, and not receiving uh, means-tested benefits, but the government provides them with all kinds of stuff. Uh, a low income, uh, couple with two children, uh, receiving all kinds of stuff from the government, a middle income couple uh, receiving all kinds of stuff from the government uh, and and so on. Uh, and, and so what that uh, it struck me very strongly, Patrick, that uh, with so much uh, dependence on the state uh, in this situation, this is uh, a, a dream come true for them because dependence on the state comes with obligations.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of strings attached. A lot of strings attached. So it's it's pushing more people towards UBI. And there's gonna be they're gonna be offering, for instance, UBI for people who are working, uh, in some cases. I think that's already sort of that push is already underway. So people who are already working or maybe they're not earning enough, um, they're gonna be eligible for UBI. So the you know, the British economy is still well below uh where it was pre pandemic. Uh, quote, pandemic, COVID. So they've had all of this time to try to make moves and uh, enact policies that are going to help economic stability and growth, uh, but they're not dealing with the root causes. And unfortunately, most of the root causes are from government policy themselves. And again, back to the uh, square one, which we said previously, Mike, that this solution that you can just keep paying people Um, keep sending out vouchers, keep writing out checks, which seems to be the uh, Sunak-Hunt game plan to tackle the economic crisis, is going to exacerbate the economic crisis, and it's going to keep fueling inflation. Don't see any meaningful reversal, of course, or pivots on green energy policy on Russian sanctions, and of course, on uh, quantitative easing or printing of money. So until you see some meaningful Uh, pivots and reversals on those three areas, particularly the markets um, and the money markets and the energy markets are going to do what they're going to do, which is it's going to get progressively worse and we're going to go further into a stagflationary cycle.
0: Yes, uh, but uh, but people got a a quick preview of the next one, but uh, no solutions in the uh, cryptocurrency markets because uh, uh, the contagion spreads from the uh, FTX collapse.
1: Yeah, so this, this scandal is much bigger than what we previously thought earlier in the week, and it goes a lot deeper. I'm just going to quickly show you how deep it goes. So FTX, they're, they're trying to basically coax uh, Sam Bankman-Fried out of the Bahamas, or he's going to have to face the music eventually on this. There's a lot of angry people. but um, So he basically transferred assets to the Bahamian government um, in their custody after bankruptcy. I mean, there's some crazy stuff going on. But you have to remember this person, this guy had developed incredible uh, business and social networks and the clout that he had has allowed him to do things um, that a lot of people just assumed were, you know, were okay who were working with him uh, because he had the backing and he was in, had some very big heavyweight people in government in in Washington, particularly in his corner and institutions that don't want to lose their money. And of course they, you know, he's got major institutional investors like BlackRock, a Sequoia SoftBank who put in, I don't know, they raised something like $2 billion in venture capital. You've got investors in there. It's like a who's who. Remember MF Global, the collapse of MF Global um, 10 years ago or so. That was a list of who's who of people. Who, it's all the same people, by the way, who jumped into MF Global. Um, and because they uh, that was, it was a sure thing. You can make a massive return. Bernie Madoff, same thing. Here we go. This is the latest. So just to quickly, just to... Uh, give you the sort of, you know, good summary here. FTX story, this is Madison Cawthorn, unfortunately, lost his House seat um, recently. But uh, for an entire year, Democratic lawmakers have stood on the House floor demanding taxpayer money for Ukraine the whole time Ukraine was funneling those tax uh, dollars into FTX, this cryptocurrency uh, behemoth, um, who in turn donated them back to Democratic lawmakers. This is, quote, Blue washing, says Madison Cawthorn and Kim.com. The FTX thief stole $1 billion from his customers and donated $100 million, uh, to the Democrats, 10% for the big guy, i.e. Joe Biden. Uh, they actually took a lot more from their customers than $1 billion. Uh, It's probably more uh, towards $10 billion, truth be known, by the end of it. But let's just look at how this network is constructed, and you'll see where this is going. I'm going to say this looks like a controlled demolition of the cryptocurrency space, but not just the, not the cryptocurrency space itself, it's gonna to continue to exist, but the how it's viewed in the public in terms of whether it has to be or can be regulated or not. And so this is a controlled demolition and look at how deep this rabbit hole goes. That's their sister company, Alameda Research. This is where Sam Bankman Freud transferred 10 billion in customer deposits um, and used it to make trades or something along those lines and so that's technically illegal. Sam Bankman-Fried, there he is, the genius, the wonder wonder kind uh, who who had the great and the good in his corner. And there's his uh, supposed girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, who had no experience really to be running an operation of this size, but she's a very interesting person, and she's connected, as you will see. And here's another key person that's connected to FTX, Gary Gensler. He's none other than the chair of the security an exchange commission that is the top regulatory man in the United States so he was working together with Sam on the commodities future uh trading commission so they were working to craft policy regarding crypto so you can see how incestuous this goes so he was right there uh step by step with all of these people who is apparently going to be uh, given a lot more power uh in the coming months with the Biden administration to regulate Crypto. So the timing of this is just uncanny, and I'm going to say not a coincidence. And so it's interesting that uh, Gary Gensler used to work under Glenn Ellison, who is the father of Sam Bankman-Fried's girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, who has no experience in managing multi-billion-dollar funds. He's the head of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where Sam Bankman-Fried graduated from. It's where he got his degree before he started his wonderful career. Uh, trading on Wall Street, and then jumped to crypto and FTX after that. But it gets even more interesting. Joseph Bankman, the father of Sam Bankman-Fried, is a top tax lawyer, uh, one of the uh, premier uh, experts in this field in the United States. He's a professor of, of law and tax law at Stanford University. So he is also involved in the conversation, the legal conversation, regarding the regulation of cryptocurrency. Isn't that interesting and would very likely uh, be in touch with people like Gary Gensler working on this as as they go as a running concern. But here's the other interesting part. Uh, Barbara Freed, the mother of Sam Bankman fried is a major Democratic Party fundraiser organizer, including the, uh, I believe she's in charge of Mind The Gap, uh, which is a major uh, sort of Democratic uh, fundraising tranche and get out. Get, the get-out-to-vote efforts and all this, these, the ground game for the Democratic Party in the last couple of elections really went through these organiz- organizations. So he basically had positioned himself in here with uh, clearly running a fraudulent operation. I would think that uh, Gary Gensler would have known that. Everybody should have seen that, but didn't. Um, and so this looks like the, the timing of this is unbelievable. And so this broke after the election, So this was a story, everyone knew this was happening, everyone knew this was going to uh, collapse and the bottom was gonna come out of it, but they held it until the election. That's the important part. And so guess what else just dropped in the last two days? And again, this is no coincidence. This is why I'm calling this a controlled demolition of the crypto space. The New York uh, Federal Reserve has just launched a 12-week central bank digital currency CBDC pilot program that's going to enroll all of the major banks uh, in this, including Citibank, uh, Wells Fargo, um, BNY Mellon, uh, Mellon Bank, and others. Um, And they're going to be involved in this uh, central bank-issued central bank digital currency. And so this is going to be basically setting the framework um, for how uh, these tokens, these new tokens, are going to be used and uh, which blockchains uh, they're gonna be working with and so forth. So this has provided the perfect opportunity, a loss of confidence in one part of the market. And then, the, so the problem created, and now the reaction, public outrage, lots of celebrities got burned in this, top athletes, uh, millionaires, billionaires, etc. lots of politicians. And now the cry, the outcry for a solution. What's the solution? It's CBDC. The timing of the rollout of this is almost like it's been scripted. And so I'm just saying this looks incredibly dodgy on a a massive level. And this goes into politics, goes into banking, finance, everything. Um, So, you know, I don't know. It it seems like that's what's going on, in in my opinion.
0: Well, uh, indeed, and uh, well-timed with the G20 statement on this issue as well. Uh, So look, uh, I'm just going to give a bit of a a warning about the video we're about to show in a second. Uh, But uh, we received an email this morning and I just wanted to highlight this. Uh, It's from a source that's saying, I'm an egg farmer from Yorkshire. I wanted to share the attached video with you that was played by a government vet at an avian influenza webinar last night, showing the before and after culling shots of some turkeys and laying hens that had tested positive for H5N1. Um, So the issue of uh, food and so on increases the rumble on. Uh, I'm just going to give a warning about this video. Some people may find it a little bit distressing, but let's just have a quick look at this.
5: Uh, To make you, to give you an idea of what is happening in a farm, basically I put a couple of videos here. So you can see this is a, sorry, this is a turkey farm, okay, this is day one when they report the disease, when they have four deaths in the first house, and this is that house.
3: It'll look healthy,
5: Norman. As you can see, the birds are happy, moving, everything is fantastic, um, you can see the noise that they made, and this is four days later. Same house. And they're all dead. The oh, sorry. Uh, this is a Lincoln. And-
0: so it goes on to talk about a, a chicken house, and the the email that we received goes on to say this: uh, as you will see, both flocks had experienced only moderate levels of mort- mortality and are looking in great health up to the point they've been gassed, and are dead in the houses. Thousands of turkeys wasted, and thousands of eggs that will now no longer be heading to supermarket shelves every day. Uh, I see stuff like this, and it makes it very difficult uh, to believe something very underhand is not going on with our food systems. And Patrick, very, very briefly, I just wanted to once again highlight uh, Slaughtered on Suspicion, um, the documentary that we made back in 2014 or something like that, uh, talking about uh, the foot and mouth disaster. Uh, and although uh, we're not seeing a Slaughtered on Suspicion policy in quite the same way, we are seeing the slaughtering, the mass culling of animals on the basis of, in this case, what a PCR test. Um, and uh, uh, you know that this this is going to have a massive impact on food supplies, but we have to remember that it was Neil Ferguson uh, and his models uh, which caused the slaughtered on suspicion policy back in 2001, uh, and uh, we see the same type of the same type of uh, policy being implemented now.
1: It, um, it's exactly the same, actually, as the as the foot and mouth crisis. It's ex- it is slaughtered on suspicion. It's exactly the same. There's this uh, thought that there's avian flu going around, and you. you it's important to ask the question: it, What is avian flu? If a if a bird caught bird flu, would they die from bird flu? Any bird, and the answer is probably no. the The basis of the slaughter of the preemptive culling is to reduce the suffering of the bird. This is one thing that I've I've seen when I've dug into this. They're saying, "Well, it'll be a, a hugely painful and they're going to have, you know, uh sores on their bills and mouth and whatever and so it's the same type of thing as the foot and mouth thing." There, there there is no evidence that there is a avian flu epidemic, first of all, or pandemic and b that it's not even fatal to the birds. So, if there was such a thing, as a avian flu, they can't show that it's ripping through the population and killing birds. So, like, what's the point of it? So, what is the point of this exercise? That's the question. Well, and many the, people, many I people think, said, yeah, Patrick, that
0: the point of the foot and mouth uh, uh, exercise was to kill, effectively kill the British beef herds. Um, the question is: Is this same policy now being implemented with respect to turkeys and chickens?
1: Yeah, it's a compassionate call a compassionate call. So so to, to alleviate suffering of the animal, you have to kill the animal and like kill animals that are perfectly healthy. So, it, and it, it, they're using the same methodology they use with COVID, with humans, with mandatory vaccinations. It's all the same sort of program. It's the same type of mindset, framework, and protocol. So it's only, the only difference is it's happening in, in different sectors. So the whole thing is completely fraudulent, in my opinion. And there's, there is no, I have yet to see any evidence of a biological sample of avian flu in any of these birds. So yeah. that's my personal view on it, but uh, it's open for debate as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yes. Okay. Right. Thank you for that. Now, let's just uh, quickly finish off then with, uh, with the U.S. Uh, midterms.
1: Well, the, <laughs> the, the aftermath of the midterms. So here it is. Guess what? Yeah, he's done it. Uh, Trump has announced uh, he is running in 20. 24. So this is the big announcement. And uh, and I was imp- a lot of people were impressed. Trump didn't go down any rabbit holes. He was calm, confident and concise. I was like, where was this Trump in 2020? So no sniping, no talk much about the elections in 2020, just stuck on policies. So that's interesting. So things are developing. It's an early announcement, six months earlier than when you normally announce. So we'll see what happens. I think it's healthy for the political system in the United States. Anyway, but two things happened, which I said were going to happen last Friday. And those two things are um, that the Republicans would have an eight seat majority in the House. And that's what it is at the moment. It is currently an eight seat projected majority for the Republicans. So uh, the Republicans have taken control of the House. The other thing I mentioned is when the Republicans do take control of the House, what are they going to do? What are the first things they're going to do? One of them is mount investigations. And of course, the first one, as we mentioned last week, will be the Biden family. And sure enough, this is what they've done. So this is the first big foray, the major opening salvo for the Republican controlled house, major investigation into Joe Biden himself and the Biden family. It's not specifically into Hunter Biden. You'll see that reported in media. That's not exactly the case. It is It is the Biden family, President Biden. That's the main focus. So that's gonna be interesting. That's gonna be painful. And, and they have a lot of lawyers and a lot of people on the committees that are going to be doing this. So they have specialists to cover different countries. So Jim Jordan uh, and James Comer are the ones heading this, fronting this particular effort. So this is where all the, uh, uh, I think, action is going to be in the run-up. There might be other investigations we'll see. So that remains, again, to be seen. So those, those two things have been happening, and it, all of the bad news has been They've waited to release it till after the election. There's just a whole litany of things that were um, meant to be um, sandbagged. One of them is Mar-a-Lago raiding Trump's house. Now the FBI, DOJ saying, well, there's nothing really there. So basically, they're starting to walk that back now. So that was a political uh, stunt back in August designed to weaken the Republicans and try to weaken Trump and ward him off of running for president or announcing early. Biden's student loan forgiveness program struck down again by the courts. That's, and so that they waited, the courts waited till after the election to make that announcement. The collapse of FTX and all the Democratic donor activity tied to that waited till after the election. So once again, uh, all convenient and politically timed.
0: Yes. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to Patrick and Vanessa. We've got to end it there. Uh, we will be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra if you're on the main UK column live stream um, but otherwise thanks for joining us uh, we would be back on at 1 p.m as usual on Monday have a great weekend and we'll see you then bye- bye